Meryl Memo with Matthew Dickerson from Dubbo Regional Council. Hello everyone and welcome to this week's edition of the Merrill Memo. Well folks, does Dubbo need a fourth McDonald's store? I'll tell you what, it's a question that I think a few people might be asking right now. So we're going to discuss to see if the fact if that is going to be a possibility here in the Dubbo town. Also, how are plans progressing for the new Wiradjuri Centre? This is something we've discussed before and we want to sort of find out how plans are progressing for that. And also, watch out Dubbo motorists, do you need to look out for some new CBD parking cameras? Are they on their way? Hello there, Matt. How are you? You're looking great. Very, very fresh, I'd suggest, today, mate. You look very fresh indeed. Always fresh when you're around, Mark. It's oh, always good to see mate, you. Mate, isn't that lovely to hear? Freshens me up, just the general attitude and the bright and sparky attitude. Mate, most of that lovely tie I'm seeing there as well. That is that is one sharp tie you got on here today. <laughs> it's obviously not a visual medium we're working on here, but I am dressed up in my suit because <laughs> obviously there are so many functions that I go to that I end up having this as my uniform. Some people do ask if I sleep in this, and sometimes I feel like I do because you go late at night with it on and then early the next morning. But anyway, look. Look, it's, it's actually really nice time to be in Dubbo at the moment. Just the, the weather, weather beautiful. Yeah, it's right, actually yeah. spot on. It's perfect at the moment. If we could just keep it like this rather than getting into the colder months or the hotter months. I'm with you. I'm hearing you. Like <laughs> we could put that order for about a 25, 26 degree day, around about that 12, 13 degrees overnight, and I think that is absolute perfection. And the lower humidity. I mean, oh, there are some places that have beautiful. that nice 25, 26 degrees maximum during the day, but they might have 80 or 90 percent humidity. Uh, which I I'm don't know how they do it. I'm <laughs> not a fan of those. <laughs> <laughs> well, buddy, let's jump into it. So sure. the first one straight off the bat today day is in regards to McDonald's. Now, I hear the fact there's the potential here that there may well be uh, a proposal here for a fourth McDonald's store in Dubbo. Is, is this the case? And, and I suppose the question a few residents may be asking is, do we need more takeaway stores here in Dubbo? Is, is, and I suppose from council's point of view, uh, what role does council play in regards to deciding on how many... <laughs> McDonald's stores we have in Dubbo, I suppose. It's a really important question because one of the things that happens when someone lodges a DA, a development application, a company or even an individual, we've got certain things at council and obviously our staff, the professional planners at our staff, go through and assess that development application. There's a whole range of things they've got to assess it on. It's obvious things like is the zone land appropriately? So if you've got residential land and someone puts in an application for a business to be built on some residential land, then our planners would say, no, that's mm. not the appropriate planning. That's not the zoning correct for it, etc. So there's a whole range of legal steps you've got to go through from that complying development status. Mm. When they get to the end of that, the staff may say, yes, this complies with all the rules and regulations in place. Some of those are very focused on state-based rules. Some of those might be local rules, things like a development control plan, for example. But ultimately, what our staff are trying to do is assess the application based against a whole range of legal rules. Right. So personal preference really can't step into that. Exactly right. You're not trying to assess it on, do we need that type of business in Dubbo? Do we need another of that business that sells the same product as other businesses that are in Dubbo? Do we need that business painted a certain colour when I'm not really a fan of that colour? So there are a whole range of things they judge it on, but those aren't the type of things that they judge it on. And there's obvious reasons for that. If you're a business person and you apply for a lodger DA to build a new business that's going to sell pink widgets, Mm. and as council... Our staff say, gee, pink widgets, Mark. There's no market for pink widgets in Dubbo, so I wouldn't worry about it. And you say, well, that's my decision. I'm the business person. Mm. I think we can sell pink widgets, so I want that application to be assessed Mm. on the rules that are in place, not whether or not I can make money out of those pink widgets. So we don't assess it on financial viability. Mm. We we definitely don't assess it on we've already got one of those. I mean, imagine Mm. a council that would say, oh, sorry, we don't need another widget store. There's already a a good widget store in town. We don't need two widget stores in town, Mm. so we're not going to approve that. Well, I'd imagine if that would be the case, you'd be opening yourself to somewhat corruption. There could be potentially restriction of trade. Mm. There'd be a lot of factors, I'd suggest, would come in if people were prepared to want to try to take that line. Spot on. There's a few things there. There may be a whole range of legal reasons there. But importantly, if you put a DA in and councillors or council staff knocked it back for reasons that weren't the legal complying reasons or lack of those legal complying reasons, then straight away that particular developer would have 
an ability to go to the Land Environment Court. They could have an ability to go to the Land Environment Court regardless, but mm. they'd have a pretty strong case if they went to the Land Environment Court and said, we got knocked back from this council because, well, they said they've already got one of those in town. They mm. don't need another one. And I'm sure the Land Environment Court pretty quickly would say, well, that's not a good enough reason to knock it back. Mm. Now, there's a few things here that are slight nuances around that. We might, as a council, say, sorry, it doesn't quite comply with our rules, but if you change this part, so it might be the size of the building, it might be some technical aspects of that, if you change those, we might make a suggestion to a developer that they need to make some changes to get it to be a legal complying development. They might say, no, I think it's complying. There might be some ambiguity in some areas. I think Mm. it's complying as it is. Then I'll go ahead as it is. Now, it might get ultimately rejected or it might be, uh, approval with certain conditions on that, they still might go to the Land Environment Court to say, no, we don't want those conditions or we think it should be approved as such. Now, the interesting part is that most of the time, councillors don't know about these DAs because mm. there are sometimes hundreds of DAs that might be lodged to council. They might be for an extension to a house or a garage or a patio or even just a house itself. Mm. You can imagine if all of those came to Council be one very long meeting. Oh, there'd have have to be multiple meetings a month to try and approve all those. Again, assuming you're approving all those, there are some reasons, some triggers Mm. for a DA to automatically come to council. But even councillors don't know about all the DAs at lodge because Mm. it would be impossible for us to keep track of all these DAs. We've got a team at council that are processing all these, but councillors. Again, keeping up with all those DAs plus all the other things councils have got to do would be near impossible. But if, for example, a DA is over $5 million, then automatically that will come to a council meeting. So we'll get to look at that DA, go through that, and again, we would be relying on some of the advice from our staff. If there are eight people that object that are in the nearby vicinity or a petition with eight people on it, then that will come to council. Or if two councillors make a request for a certain DA to come to council, then that will automatically come to council. So there are avenues. So so if people out there sort of feeling as though they want to object to any DA development that comes in, there's there's, there's an opportunity there for people to put in their their claim to say, look, I I disapprove of this. I I, I don't want this to happen. And I feel as though council needs to be looking at this more closely to sort of see some of the problems potentially that could arise. So there's opportunities there for residents to do so. Exactly right. And that number eight, or go and talk to a couple of your local councillors and say, I really have some problems with this. Can two of you come together and help me out Mm. and at least take it to council? Now, that doesn't mean it'll be rejected but it means at least it will go to council and be heard in that public process mm. and people can come along and make their representations at a public forum. The other reason that it will always go to council is if our staff are recommending a refusal. Now, this is something that we introduced in this council, the group of councillors, in terms of the various delegations of authority that our CEO has as opposed to a council meeting. Mm. You can give lots of power, lots of authority to a CEO at a council. And again, you can basically, the local man says, you can basically delegate almost everything to the CEO except things like employing the CEO, which kind of makes sense. The so you council, yourself. That's, that's right. Yeah, the council yeah. always has to do that one. But one of the things that we said is we don't want to delegate the power for our CEO to reject a DA. Now, the reason we said that is that, and we're not suggesting that there's any corruption involved in mm. our CEO, and we're not making that reference at all, but if you wanted to have any potential for corruption, mm. then having our staff or the CEO with the ability, without going to a council meeting to reject a DA, would mean that someone could say, I want you to pay me $10,000 Otherwise, I'm going to reject this mm. DA. Now, again, I say that I'm not implying in no, any way, shape, or form that I'm saying that Murray or the CEO in this sort of situation is anyway. That's right, or any of our staff. So, anybody, yeah. but it's really just about the process. And in the process, if you want a refusal, if you want a DA to be refused, our staff might have good reasons to recommend a refusal. That mm. always has to come to council. Now, the interesting part is mm. you've got this great team of professionals at council. You've got all these years of experience and all this education in place and they'll go and assess a DA very much based on the rules in place. Not that we don't need a fourth Mm. McDonald's or I don't like the colour of that building or we've already got Mm. widgets being sold. And there are very, very strict criteria on this, I'd suggest. Absolutely right. Now, that comes to council. Councillors can say, huh, we see the recommendation from our staff. We don't care. We'll change that and we'll go in a different direction. Mm. You can do that, but again, the developer Mm. or 
the residents who might be impacted by that mm. can make some application. And, and when I say residents, there's a bit of a tricky process there to, mm. for residents to get something to the Land Environment Court. But there is a process mm. that DAs that are rejected or accepted or whatever it might be. So they have that due right of appeal, basically. There is a process to go to the Land Environment yeah. Court. So there was an example recently about some signage where it didn't comply with our local conditions or laws mm. and there was some signage where the applicant said I want this to go to council I know it doesn't comply but councillors can reject all those planning laws in mm. place and go down the path and approve this signage if they want and councillors could have and we debated it back and forth and we said are our rules a bit misplaced Are we mm. have we got the rules in place correctly what does this mean for other people that might want signage in the end we stuck with our rules and said no you can't have that particular signage there mm. but we could have said yes to that now again there might have been applications from other businesses then that said well you let that one go through well mm. you rejected this one previously i want this one to go through as well mm. could have opened up a whole pandora's box but again this was one of those processes that could have happened yeah. so councillors do have that power to make decisions around those DAs, those ones that come to council, but mm. ultimately you tend to find that people stick with the recommendations from mm. our professional staff in the main. Look, look, question for you here in regards to it, and um, I know this is probably being bandied about within some members of our communities. The question, now correct me if I'm wrong here, but are there some communities and some council areas in Australia where they point blankly refuse to have certain types of development in their area? Does council have that power to be able to say point blankly, uh, look, we don't want that type of development here in our town or in our area? So you could have a development control plan that had some extra conditions, for example, and that might say that we don't have certain types of businesses in there. Mm. So you could do that as a local policy. I think local law is too strong a word because mm. councils don't really make law, but you can have local policies, local plans, local control plans. Mm. And so, yes, there are some councils who might have some of those restrictions in place and say we're not going to have certain types of business. Now, even though they might have that in the local policy, a couple of things there. One, at mm. least it sends a signal to developers to say, if you're going to put an application in for this type of business, be forewarned that we've got some plans and some controls in place to say no. Mm. They might submit that application regardless and then know that it's going to be rejected and then take it to the Land Environment Court and then they'd have a different argument. So even though that local council might say, we're not having that mm. type of business, the Land Environment Court would say, well, that's unreasonable, so we're going to approve it over the top of council. So okay, you've got so, that so process. they still have that gazumping power, so to speak, over anything the council would want to say. That's, that's right. And, and there's, look, there's a lot of nuance in the things okay. that you're talking about there, but in general, that's right. What would be concerning to me as someone who's on council, mm. would be sending a mixed signal to the market. Because what you want as a developer is confidence and consistency. Mm. If you put an application in that comply with all the local laws and you've checked your, your team, have checked the development control plans, and you've checked the zoning, you've checked everything, and you've submitted an application that you believe to be a legal compliant application, and the staff assess it, and then it gets to council and they go, no, nah, we don't like that type of business now. We think we've got too many of those. Let's reject that. Mm. Not only is a lot of money being spent by that developer to get to that point with a lodge mm. of DA, but it also sends a signal to the wider market that you shouldn't have confidence in this council because they seem to just ignore their own plans, their own laws. Now, again, mm. if there was a plan in place that said we're rejecting a certain type of business, then at least that signals to the market. But if you accept those applications and it gets to the end and then you go, ah, you know what, don't really mm. like that type of business, we'll reject it. I think that's the risk you would have mm. where a business would say, we don't really want to do business in that community because we're not sure if it'll be approved at the end of it all. Mm. And the funny part is that in relation to the McDonald's, for example, yep. people have said, oh, we don't want McDonald's, we want more fruit and vegetable stores or we want a Harris Farm or we want other types of business. Well, it's not up to council to determine the type of business. Now, I've tried in the past when people wanted Aldi here, for example, I went down and met with Aldi and I said, this is a great place to be. We want your business here, but I can't make them do it. Mm. I can't say, oh, well, you need right. to it's, put it's, in a it's DA tomorrow. It's always going to be the business decision is where they want to build. Exactly right. Yeah. And they'll make the decision based on a whole range of metrics that they calculate and make that decision mm. ultimately. Harris Farm, I've had discussions with Harris Farm. I've said, we want you. I've met with Luke Harris, for example, down mm. in Sydney at Harris Farm. I've had those discussions there. But again, all you can do is say, we're here, we're open for business, we'd love to see you here. Mm. But 
It doesn't mean we're going to ignore all our local laws. It doesn't mean you put an application in, we'll ignore everything, we'll just open the doors and let it go through. You've still got to put a legal complying development in. I also saw comments from people where they were talking about, well, if you don't want a McDonald's in Dubbo, we'd love one here in our community. It might be Gilgandra or Walgut or Warren or wherever it might be. But again, that's not no, our no. job. Well, that's, that's up to McDonald's. Exactly. Well, if you're out there in those other communities, you want it, we'll go and push a barrow. You know? Push a barrow. But again, yeah. McDonald's will have their metrics. They would yeah. look at a community and they'd say population, number of cars that go past that, the demographics of the population, mm. and this is how many McDonald's can support or how much mm. turnover they'll generate. All those metrics. They've mm. got a, a very well-developed model. And they've got over a 1,000 McDonald's in Australia, so they've got mm. a lot of data to base all of that on. So we don't control, if you like, no. Businesses that come and put DAs in, we don't make business put DA in. The best we can do is say, hey, we'd love to see your business here. But ultimately, if that business, if, if those widgets are us, for example, mm. that was doing their metrics and doing their, doing their due diligence and Dubbo was going to work for them, mm. they'd know that about that before we know about it. Yeah. So they'd already have done their calculations. They'd say, widgets are us, need to be in Dubbo because it meets criteria A, B, C and D for us to open a store. Let's go there. That would happen years before anyone at council said, hey, let's go and knock on the door of Widgets R Us. And if their metrics don't match, then they won't open a store there. So the final obvious question, so is there a DA being put in for a new McDonald's? Absolutely. So it's over near Astley's, over on Kabora Road, and essentially the DA's been lodged. It's being assessed by our staff as we speak. It probably won't come to council because I don't think it's going to be over $5 million. It'd only come to council if it met that eight objectors or two councillors want to bring it to council, but it will be assessed by our staff. And if it complies and if everything matches up and they approve that DA, then that will be up Mm. to McDonald's to go and build that. Again, it won't be our decision to say, we don't need more McDonald's or Mm. we don't need fast food there, or there's another hamburger place just down the road. This Mm. will impact their business. They're not decisions for us to make. It's really about, does it comply with our local laws? Mm. Absolutely. Well, speaking of developments and keeping the development line running, uh, we spoke about this uh, probably maybe five or six weeks ago now, I think, in regards to the new Wiradjuri Centre. This is a very exciting development. I'm looking forward to this, Matt. I was actually only just uh, driving past that area there the other day, and I was there with my old man, and we're just sort of chatting along, and he's talking about it. And he said, uh, you know what, I've never been over there to the Japanese gardens. I said, we do yourself a favour and get out more. I'll tell you what, go and see it, for goodness me. Um, he said, is that, is that where that new Wiradjuri Centre is going in? And I said, yeah, that's that's the spot. It's in there in that precinct. That's the area. So uh, obviously there's been no sod turning as yet from what I can gather, but it, how are plans progressing with this? Are we still on track for this? They're progressing. It's probably a little bit behind schedule, certainly behind where I'd like it to be, but mm. something that's very important with that is to make sure that we undertake enough community consultation and make sure we've got enough So people. it's still part of the consultation process, right? Yeah, now, so. and we, we haven't even lodged the DA, even okay. though it's a council facility, we still need to lodge a DA, mm. and it mm. will be a big enough project that we will probably need to lodge it externally rather than lodge it internally. Okay. But we've got money, we've got two chunks of money to grant funds that have been given to council from the state government. Is there a actually, time frame on those grants or they're just they're there waiting? Well, that's go, a or? perfect question, actually. During the council meeting last week, that was one of the questions asked by one of the councillors is, is there a deadline on that? Mm. Are we going to have to hand the money back, which would be hor- horrific. Yeah, you like, don't do that. Uh, it's so hard to get a grant, you don't mm. hand it back. And so there often are deadlines. In fact, I'd say there are always are deadlines on grant money and when you have to spend that money by. But normally the grant authority, they've already allocated that money if you can't meet the original deadline, you normally need to go back and have a discussion with them and ask for an extension. It's very rare for that extension not to be granted Mm. because they want to see the project delivered. It was good enough to be given the grant in the first place, so they want to see that project delivered. So the process is still occurring, that consultation is still occurring. We'll get that DA lodged shortly, but ultimately, for a time frame, I would say we will see work, physical work, started on that Radri Cultural Tourism Centre by the end of this calendar year. So okay. by 31st yep. of December 2023, yep. hopefully we'll be having discussions at that time and I'll be saying to you, oh, isn't it great? Mm-hmm. We've just started construction there before Absolutely. that time frame. Construction time, it's a big project, so I don't want to put a time frame on when that would be finished yet mm. because I just don't know enough details about that. But certainly construction start 
the target is by the end of this year. And you're right up there on that Elizabeth Park precinct. So if you look, for example, where the Macquarie Inn is, yes. opposite that is basically where that will be on that corner in there. So, so a little that same like precinct. It, how big is this thing going to be? Yeah, it's actually fairly big and it's, it is built in a circular method. So that'll probably make it more expensive when yeah. we finally come to build it. Yeah. Architects are great at drawing fantastic drawings. <laughs> Sometimes building is a bit harder. Yes. And I, I can't tell you off the top of my head the actual diameter of that. But in that corner there, it, it'll be fairly substantial in that corner. And we want it to be substantial. We want mm. people to come along and go, wow, look at that. Yeah. And we really want that to be an attractive place for people to come to and really attract people to it. Because in my opinion, there isn't enough Aboriginal tourism this will be another path that adds to that Aboriginal tourism because yeah. people, when they come from metropolitan oh. areas and when they come from overseas, they want to see some local Aboriginal tourism, in this case, some Rajri tourism. Well, you know what it's like when you go overseas and you go to places and uh, one of the greatest spots you ever go to is where you see the actual uh, the exhibits that are set up there about the Indigenous people of the land, uh, exactly wherever right. it happens to be. And uh, unfortunately, we just don't have a lot of it out here in Australia. And this will be very, very special to have it set out here right smack bam in the middle of Wiradjuri country as well. Uh, exactly right. So very exciting. Mm. It's happening, happening a little bit slower than I'd like, but it's happening. So by the end of the year... Stick to me mm. to that and, and remind me at the end of the year. I will, buddy. Happened. Don't worry about that. I'll remind you well. Roads, roads, roads and more roads. It's good to see the fact we're getting back on the roads again, mate. Uh, and this one here is a good one, though. I, I'm looking forward to this sort of point of discussion. Um, you announced here a couple of podcasts back that the Dubbo City Council received about $5 million in grant funding here, an extension of the grant funding uh, for road repair. Now, notice here that during the week, uh, Council has made some prioritisations in regards to where this $5 million of funding is going to go. So here we go. Let's hear it first in regards to where some of this money is going to head off to. Because I know there's a few residents out there jumping up and down just waiting to hear, will my road out the front be done? And it's a tough one because our estimation, we've talked before about that $40 million infrastructure backlog for roads. Mm. The current estimation, and this isn't comprehensive, but the current estimation has gone up with some of the damage that happened to roads during our flooding over the last part of 2022. Right. It's probably closer to $65 million now. Wow. So we had a $65 million potential spend and we had $5 million to spend. doesn't seem like a lot when you put it like that. No, I got excited for $5 million, but when you say $65 million, but still, I suppose $5 million is $5 million. It's, it's still $5 know. million more than we had yesterday, yeah, so yeah. it's still okay. So we, we already spent some of it, and we were allowed to spend some of that straight away. Okay. So we spent about $200,000 straight away, so that left us with just under $5 million to spend. Mm-hmm. And then that was a matter of prioritisation, and at the council meeting during the week, councillors made that decision on priority. Now, we took lots of information from our staff there and looked at the quality of the roads, the condition of the roads, mm. and the frequency of use. Mm. There are some people who tell me some of their roads are horrific, but they might not have a lot of traffic on them. Other people say, oh, this road here, it's not too bad, but it's got a huge amount of traffic on there. So you're mm. trying to weigh up that condition and the traffic volume to get to the roads where or the, the, where the money's going to be spent, the most effectively spent. So... What we end up with was, and I'll go in order of dollars spent, Saxa Road, $1.3 million is going okay. to be spent on yep. that. This is the one out near Wellington. Is That's that the one that we've yep. talked about before that links up effectively the Mitchell Highway across to the Golden Highway. This one also had the bridge issue. Correct. So yes. we've got more work to do on that okay. bridge, and that'll happen over the next 12 months. Yep. But Saxa Road itself, and I've driven that a few times, it is in terrible condition, and that won't do all of it. This is heavy patching we're doing on that road, and again, it's one of those things that we start doing it and just keep working our way mm. through it. So Saxa Road, $1.3 million. Benelong Road, $1.2 million. Where's Benelong Road? Where's that? Benelong Road is if you go out on Obley Road and then turn off Obley Road to the left, you'll okay. go along to Benelong Road. So right. I, that's probably as, as close as I can give you off the top of my right, head mate. there. But no, yeah, that's fine. Yep. Benelong Road. So then you've got Burundong Way. So oh, yes. Burundong yes. Way is yes. kind of the back way to Orange, if you yes. like. That, that area is pretty ordinary through there. Wasn't There was that terrible accident near Orange was, on that Burundong Way the other day. Yeah, yes. there was one there. There was actually a fatality there, which was terrible. Mm. And again, there are many roads there where people have said to me, you've got to do something about this road before there is a fatality. And mm. there are risks across lots of our roads where a fatality could occur. So but you've really got to try and get people to drive to the conditions and just drive slower. And I find myself taking longer to get places at the moment because yeah. you just have to drive slower, unfortunately. So a million dollars there on Burundong Way, 
Then you've got the Renshaw McGurr Way, which okay. again is down at Wellington, right. which goes across to connect up through to Parks. Yes. So we're spending seven hundred and twenty thousand dollars on that. $350,000 on Dripstone Road, $205,000 on Oberley Road, $47,000 on Mogagai Road, $31,000 on Colli Road. So you put all those together, you get to just under $5 mm. million. Well, there's a lot of roads there that I'd suggest, the fact, are in desperate need of repair. Not just bad need, they're in desperate need, some of these roads. They're, you're right, and there's still more roads that mm. are desperately need of repair, and it will keep continuing on. This is extra work, if you like. Mm. Now, remember, we've got, as we've talked about before, about $28 million in our current budget this financial year mm. for our roads budget. So we're still, we'll be using that money to do other work. Yeah. We've got work we're doing on Wheelers Lane at the moment, for example. That's work that's just out of our normal budgetary yeah. expense. So you've got other money being spent. That's not all mm. the work we'll be doing. This is extra work that out of budget, if mm. you like. And so that's additional work. We'll keep talking to the state government. We've talked before about the fact that our renewable energy zone is in this area that gives us an opportunity to try and get some extra money and we think that will be a real secret for us to get extra repair work that ratepayers won't have to pay for mm. and we won't be just relying on putting our hand out for government grants mm. but we'll keep looking at innovative ways to get extra money for our roads because we need it desperately. Oh, it's unreal. Absolutely. Now again, this is another area we've uh, we touched on and, and spent a bit of time on actually uh, a little while back in regards to what's happening out there with the erosion. Talking about Wellington and Wellington's uh, front and foremost of our discussions today. Now, there's two areas to this one, uh, Matt. The first one is in regards to the erosion that occurred there um, at Pioneer Park, which is, I suppose, the soccer field area there. As you're heading out, people who go to the races at Wellington, that's the the soccer field's there on the right-hand side, just over the bridge, isn't it? That's Pioneer Park. Yeah. You've got Cameron Park, which is the main park as you're driving through town, but you've got the Bell... Is that the Bell River runs through there? That's Correct. the one? So the Bell River there looks like it's done some pretty significant damage, certainly on Pioneer Park side, and I think there's some roads there in particular that have been washed away pretty well. And, of course, the other part of this is the Duke of Wellington Bridge, um, which... Uh, sustained significant damage in the last last flood uh, to the point where obviously it can't be used right now. So where are we up to in regards to the repair work on that? Has there been any further progress happening here? So there's a couple of things there. If we look at Pioneer Park for start, and you're spot on there, that's the soccer fields on mm. the other side of the river from Cameron Park. We've got that nice new pedestrian bridge now that joins up Cameron yeah, Park looks to Pioneer pretty Park. pretty stunning. I haven't walked over it yet, but I drove past it a few times. It looks yeah, fantastic. it looks yeah. very nice. It looks a bit better than the bridge, the old bridge yeah. that's just beside yeah. it there. But what happened with the high flows down the Bell River, and the Bell River does seem to come up very quickly, mm. and there were some very high flows there, it washed away a lot of that road that was around Piney Park, so there was effectively a road around there. Now, we had a couple of options, put it back to how it was, but the problem there was we mm. thought that if we just did the same, we'd probably get to the point where the next time there was a high flow, it would wash mm. it out again yep. and leave it in the same state. So we're doing some work with Soil Conservation Service, and we haven't got okay. the final design at this yep. stage, but we'll do some work and some further consultation with the community there to actually change the road layout, to change the structure of that, to get to the point where we believe it'll handle the next high flow and the next high flow. So subsequent high flows, we don't want to keep repairing it. It'll mean that we'll spend a bit more this time. So mm. we're probably going to spend in the vicinity of $1.2, maybe $1.3 million okay. on this. So it's a significant amount of money again in regards amount. to repairs. Yeah. That's right. But we think it's worth it rather than spending a smaller sum mm. and the next time we just keep doing the same thing. Now, the interesting part is that when you do repairs on flood damage roads and flood, flood damage infrastructure, mm. if it's essential infrastructure, so that might be roads or bridges, for example, then the state government essentially has a deal with councils where you can submit essential infrastructure costs and they will give you back the money you spend on that. So mm. whatever you spend, if you spend 300000 or $3 million on repairing the essential infrastructure, you'll get that money back. But recreational infrastructure... They give you a million dollars, and that million dollars you have to work out how to spend. Sorry, they'll only give you a million dollars if you've got at least a million dollars worth of repairs. Right, but yes. If you've I was going to say just uh, just a general million dollar figure, is that right, Matt? Yeah. No, but that it, twenty thousand swing set recreational will give you a million dollars. That's it. right. <laughs> if, if 
you've got at least a million dollars, I'll say, there's a million dollars mm. for your recreational. Mm. You've got to work out how you spend that, even though you might have had three or five or $10 million worth of damage to your recreational areas. So, so it's a maximum capacity figure they'll give you sort of thing. That's right, okay. for recreation. So for non-essential infrastructure, recreation obviously comes under that. Mm. There's your million dollars. You've got to work out how to spend that. So we've got to manage that money, and we'll be using some of that money for this repair and some just general rates and revenue money mm. that we've got so it's not ideal, but we still believe it's better to spend that money in a way that makes it more resilient mm. in the future because I can pretty much guarantee that what we saw at the end of 2022, mm. we'll see again, whether oh, it'll be in three years or yes. five years or 10 years, but we'll see that again and again and again. Yeah. And I think we're doing the community a disservice if we just take the cheap option and do it now mm. rather than say let's do it properly for the future. So is there, there a time frame for this? I noticed you mentioned earlier there that you're in consultation with the government agency it sounds like in yeah. regards to getting their ideas and, and officer support from the point of view of their intellectual capacity I suppose to feed in on this but from ideas factor. So do you have a timeline on this or is this sort of we're still in the, the process of all of this discussion in regards to what's the best way to go forward? Yeah, I haven't got a definitive timeline for you at this stage because okay. it is very early in yep. those discussions. And soil con service, I imagine, are fairly stretched at the moment because mm. it's not just Dubbo and Wellington that had a few issues with water no, through 2022. all over the place, wasn't it? That's, that's right. right. So I'm sure their resources are fairly stretched. But we'll work with them and try and get the best okay. timeline available and obviously go forward from that perspective. But I don't expect that part of the repair to take a huge amount of time. And when I say that, I'd expect probably months to be okay. the figure to get to the point where we've at least got a plan going forward. Yep. And maybe by the end of the year, we'll have all that work finished and done. We really want to have something done before the soccer season starts. Yeah. So I, yeah. I don't know we'll have it all Would that fully be something done. more temporary as opposed to permanent, I would suggest? Well, I don't know if I'd say temporary because I don't like doing temporary works mm. that then you've got to redo. But we'll have at least enough of the solution done okay. that the soccer fields could be used by the time the soccer season starts. So okay. that's our first timeline, if you like, or first deadline. Yeah. Whether it'll be all completed by then, I'm not convinced, but at least something so they mm. can be used. So that's partly there. Fantastic. Now, Duke of Wellington Bridge. We okay. move on to the Duke of Wellington Bridge. How's that progressing? Where are we going with that? That's a trickier one. Mm. We've discussed before that report back in 2018 that council was given to say there's a couple of key risk areas on the Bell and Macquarie Rivers. Mm. One of them was identified as the riverbank that feeds into the area where the Duke of Wellington Bridge was. That was identified as an area that needed to have some work done mm. to stop any erosion, further erosion occurring because there was risk that you'd get to the stage where that road wouldn't be usable. Mm. But nothing was done, was it? Correct. They had okay. a workshop. Councillors had a workshop in 2019, the beginning of 2019. Mm. And as a result of that workshop, councillors did nothing. Mm. Now, I know some former councillors said that they instructed staff to go and do something, but a workshop means nothing. You don't mm. instruct staff at a workshop. Where you instruct staff is a council meeting. You have a council resolution to instruct staff what to do. That never occurred. So basically council did nothing with it. Mm. And they had a cost which was a reasonable cost to shore up that area. And we wouldn't be having this conversation now if they mm. had have taken action. Now, we're where we are now, so we've got to deal with that. Mm. At the moment, you've got a lot of erosion on the entrance to that, on the other side of the river, on the Sydney side of the river, if you like. So you can't get to the Duke of Wellington Bridge so now. So the road is completely cut now to the bridge, is that right? You can't actually Correct. get can't to the bridge at all? you can't drive a car down there. Okay. It's enough eroded away there. We think the bridge is okay, and right. then on the other side of the bridge as well, you can get to the bridge, but it's not much point getting to the bridge mm. there, and it looks a bit shaky as you go to the entrance because mm. mm. you can't go anywhere off the other side. So <laughs> we've got a few things to look at there. Yes. And doing nothing is an option, but not an option I like. Mm. So when we went through our council meeting on Thursday – we had an, a range of options put to us in terms of where we want to go with it. And one of the options was do nothing, mm. to sit back and let nature take its course and let things happen. But again, I don't think that's the right approach to take. And councillors in the end decided that wasn't the right approach to take. The approach that we took was, first of all, get a structural assessment done of the bridge. Been a lot of water flowing there, a lot of water down the Macquarie there, a lot of water coming through from the bell. So get a structural assessment. Because if that bridge is no longer safe well, it probably makes the decision easier in what to do because mm. reconstructing that bridge is going to be very expensive. Yes. But let's get that assessment done first. Yeah. Let's not just guess. So oh, know what right. we're looking for first, I suppose, the sense. Of like what, what is the costing of the actual problem and the potential for what that problem could look like for you? So you actually get a bit more information about it first. That's right. You need okay. data to make decisions, to yeah. make good decisions. Yeah. Then, So that's 
Again, let's get a structural assessment done. Then we've got a range of options. Do nothing, as I said, mm. or maybe we remove the bridge. Maybe we say, well, the erosion's taken place. Let's get rid of the bridge. What's the cost to remove the bridge? Mm. What's the cost to fix up the riverbank to the point where you could have it as a pedestrian bridge, for example? Mm. What's the cost to reinstate that riverbank to the point where you could have it as a bridge that cars would use again? Mm. So what are some of these options? So in the end, what council resolved to do was to say, get the structural assessment done. Give us the cost of removing that bridge, because we don't think if you're not going to use it, we don't think we should leave it there. Mm. Remove that bridge and basically do some work on the bank to just keep the erosion where it is now without it continuing to eat in there, because it's eating away people's properties. You might eventually get to houses there. Mm. Or look at restoring that riverbank to the point where you could use it as a pedestrian or even as a car back to cars. Mm. Once we get those numbers, then we can make a decision. And that will make the decision a bit easier. And, and let's be a bit out there. If it came back and said structural damage to the bridge, the assessment of the riverbank, it's going to cost you $25 million to do all that. I just don't think that would be viable for council to do that. If they came back and said, oh, look, it's easy. Mm. It's going to cost you $50,000 to fix up the riverbank and the bridge is perfectly in condition. Then I think council would say, oh, $50,000, let's do that in a heartbeat. It's not going to be $50,000. No. It's not going to be $25 million. It's going to be mm. somewhere in there how much it's going to be. That, I think, will determine what we do with it in the end. But I suppose from a Wellington resident point of mm. view, know that we are doing work on it yeah. to make a decision. And then when we're making that decision, we'll actually make sure the community is fully informed about our options, including those dollar values. And I'm sure there'll be some representations from members of the community yeah. about what to do with that. And then we'll have to make a final decision on what to do. Do you know how busy this bridge was prior to it all sort of coming through? Like, is, is, is this going to be part of the consideration as well in regards to in moving forward with this? You've got the costing aspect of it. The usage aspect of it, or the potential usage, I'd imagine, would be the other part you'd look at as well, wouldn't you? I'm assuming that's how it goes. Absolutely right. And we don't have – we're trying to find if there's any data we've got there because the old saying is that if you rely on – anecdotal information, well, the plural of anecdote is anecdotes. The plural of anecdote is not data. So you can have as many anecdotes as you like, mm. but it still doesn't give you data. So you could talk to people and say, oh, it's really busy down there, or no one uses that bridge, don't worry about it. Mm. Well, that's just anecdotal information. It's yeah. not data. We're actually looking to see if there's been any traffic reports done at any time on the traffic that goes across that bridge down there. Mm. And if we've got that data, we could use it. If we don't have that data, that gets a bit trickier. How do we assess how much traffic is used there? Mm. No point putting traffic counters now because you can't can't use use it. it. No point restoring the riverbank to put traffic counters Mm. in and they go, oh, actually, it's not used that much. We didn't need to restore that. So we'll have to make some decisions around that. But that is an important part of it. Mm. But we need to work out some way to get some discussion around the traffic volume we've got there. And again, if we had the data that Mm. said, and again, if I go to extremes, if it was five cars a day use that bridge, mm. you'd probably say it's not worth spending much money on. If it was five cars a minute use that bridge, you'd say, mm. oh, look, it's absolutely worth spending a large amount of money on because yeah. it was obviously well utilised by the community. So there's some tricky information there. You want to get all the data, the costing, as much as possible, the traffic volumes, yeah. get all of that, weigh all that up, get some feedback from the community, and then ultimately – what we're paid the big bucks for to be on council is to make decisions. That's That's right. And that's what you've got to do. You've got to make a decision. You don't want to leave it like the last council did, just floating with no decision, no resolution from council. We need to actually make a decision. And that decision, the reason sometimes people don't make decisions is because you're going to get some people with their nose out of joint or some people unhappy, but you've got to ultimately make a decision. But as I've said lots of times, you've got to make sure the community understands why you made the decision. They may not like the decision, but at least understand why you understand made that decision. Understand the process. Well, Matt, I uh, I know from time to time I have uh, have done this, and I've pulled up at a um, one of those areas, maybe along Macquarie Street, and it's got the hour parking section there, and I and I know that I've ducked in maybe to Myers or to somewhere a shop, and. Uh, and it's got to my about an hour of time, and I'm thinking, oh, I reckon that parking person, I'm hoping that may have sort of moved past maybe half an hour ago. I reckon I maybe got another 15, 20 minutes. 
Am I in a position now where I might have to sort of a little bit more anxious about uh, making sure that I'm only there for that hour time? Are there going to be some new parking monitors or parking systems set up there in the main street in the CBD? What's what's actually happening to you, mate? What, what's is is there a new system about to take place? It's always risky talking about parking because residents don't like the idea of getting a fine, obviously. Yes, yes. Whereas businesses like the idea of cars turning over on a regular basis. Get the new people in. Yes, that's right. So you get people to come along and shop there. So it's a tricky one. We've got laws, we've got yes. parking signs that have conditions about parking and we've got parking officers that walk around as you know and mm-hmm. put a bit of chalk oh, on yes, a tyre yeah, and then yeah, come absolutely. back and yeah. check that tyre <laughs> and people have all sorts of ideas about rubbing that tyre Yeah tire that's right, I've tried and it doesn't work I'll tell you. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> but there's technology, there's modern technology and so yes. we've got a couple of things happening at the moment. One is a trial where we've actually got some sensors in the ground. So oh, we've right. inserted sensors in the ground and what happens with those? Is they, they dig them in into the ground. Very small. It's probably the size of your thumb in terms yeah, of the right. unit itself. So they drill a very small hole and they drop the sensor in and a little bit of bitumen over the top so you don't even see it there. Yeah, right. But they're set up to detect that metal that comes over it, okay. detect that car. And then if someone's been there longer than the actual parking area there, one hour, mm. two hours, whatever, mm. then our parking inspectors get an alert oh. and then they can look at, oh, look at that, Bay 57, someone's been there for too long. Then they go there and they physically check a few things. They check okay. that it hasn't got a disability is, sticker is on there. Is that a bit like when you go down to the major shopping centres in Sydney or Newcastle, whatever, and they've got the light metre set up there, a similar type of thing in the sense that once you go in, it goes red and when you go out, it goes green. I suppose that type of technology that it recognises that there's somebody now over this space. Yeah, and those ones in parking centres do it above. They do it oh, from okay, a, yeah, a centre yeah. above, where these are in the ground because it's yeah. not. They haven't got any structure above those parking yep. spots. Yep. But that's only a couple of hundred parking spots we've got mm. as that, and that's a trial that we're doing to see the effectiveness of those. But again, mm. when our parking officer comes along, they can check all the other things like a disability sticker, for example, mm. or any sort of other mm. extenuating mm. circumstances, the bonnet might be up and there's someone working on the car so they don't go and book them then. So there's have other they things. Been they, they, they have been effective? They They have been, yeah, they have been uh. very effective. And again, it means that our parking officers can be used more effectively. Mm. But the latest trial, so that one's ongoing at the moment. So, so it's well, still going. So that this, one, this is that's right. still a trial. That one is. And yep. the latest one that we've just finished a trial, mm. and this one was given to us by a company that sells the technology, they're obviously trying to attract us in, sure. is a technology that you basically mount some cameras on a car, right. and then you drive along. And I actually went for a ride with our parking officers the other day right, right. and went for a ride along the street just to see how that works. So what it does is it will take a photo of each number plate as you go past, and it puts a time-date stamp on there. So, so, so the camera, so you like the camera off the side, it's instantly yep. just sort of recognising the car number plates. Correct. Black, black, keeps in a memory bank, so to speak. Yep. And okay, then yeah. it goes along and it has a picture of the car yeah. and, and obviously does some recognition of the letters and numbers on the number plate. Yep. So it's got that there and it knows that that's sitting there parked. Now, you can drive along and when we're for the drive, we drive along at 20, 30, 40 kilometres an hour. So obviously they probably drive slow mm. normally, but it picked them up quite quickly and then registered on there. And then as you went along and you kept going around, you might come back around and loop back around. And then if you're there again an hour later in an hour parking zone, then it will register that that car, we know I saw that same number plate in that same position. It's relying on a GPS that's accurate to within three centimetres. So it knows that it hasn't moved along the street or just parked somewhere else, and it recognises that, and then an alert goes off. And I was actually quite amazed. We went for a drive along Talbagar, Macquarie. They'd been working through the day, so when I jumped in, it already had some information set up in its memory, as you said. Mm. And then we drove along Talbagar, ding, Ding, oh, really? ding. So these are the ones that have been there They're, for too long. That's exactly right. And, and <laughs> I said that, that to right? one of the park officers. I said, so all those dings, are they people that said, yeah. yeah. We, and we weren't, in this case, we weren't stopping and finding anyone. It was yeah. really just a demonstration of the trial. If we get to the stage of using this sort of technology, mm. it really will be a process then. Ding, one goes off, they'll stop. The, there'll be two parking officers in the car, the same as we've got two that walk the streets. Right. Jump out, look for a disability sticker again, look to see that, there's nothing on the car for any mm. reason for it to be parked there for longer than normal, and then issue the fine accordingly. So mm. it'll just mean that they'll be more efficient in the way they do it. Yeah. It won't mean that you're going to get fined any differently. So if it's a two-hour parking zone now, it'll be a two-hour parking zone. Mm. It might mean that, as you said, oh, I think I've got a bit of time. I didn't see the parking officer there 10 mm. minutes after I parked, so I think I should be right. You might 
be having to be a bit more accurate with mm. your timing there. So mm. if the two-hour parking, it's probably going to be pretty close to two hours before they yeah. drive past again and an alert goes off and they say, right, this person's been there for too long. Yep. But it's not going to change those parking. And if you don't transgress those parking zones, you're not going to have a problem. No, that's right. It's only if you actually go outside those parameters for those, but it's using technology. Absolutely. Let's use technology to be smarter than it is at the moment. But I was quite impressed with the technology. Again, you've got the pictures there. So if someone says, no, no, there's no way I was there longer. Well, here's a picture of your car, sir, at 12.17 p.m. And here's another picture of your car at 1.22 p.m., it's in a one-hour parking zone. That's where you were parked there. So these are two pictures. It's pretty hard to argue that's with that cool. unless you happen to go to another parking spot and you came back and parked in the identical parking mm. spot at some time later. It's pretty hard argument to put up to say that you were just lucky enough to get that same yeah, parking that's right. spot exactly. at some period of time later. So it's good use of technology. Yeah. We've now handed the equipment back. Again, it costs us nothing to go down that path mm. and use that equipment. Is the going to move forward with this? Is this going to be something they're going to do? Or again, it's got to go to council, I suppose, to make a decision on it. You're spot on. So... This will now be something that our staff go through, analyse that, look at all the information they've received during that Mm. trial process, and then they'll do a report that will come to council, and councils will ultimately decide, because obviously they gave us the equipment to use for a trial. They're not going to give it to us to use in the future. It'll be a matter of weighing up how much does it cost, Mm. how much extra revenue might we generate. It's not about generating revenue. It's about making sure we've got that effective turnover in our CBD. I'm loathe to go near parking metres now, if anyone wanted to, if any council wanted to suggest parking meters, they've got their rights to go forward and mm. move a notice of motion to bring that to council and it would be an, a council vote on the day. Mm. But I'm not keen on going to parking meters. Having said that, I know Sid- Sydney of City Council mm. generates millions of dollars a year in parking meters. But I just, I think it takes away a bit of that nice country feel mm. when you've got parking meters there. Mm. So I'm loath to go that way. But mm. if we can enforce or police these a bit better, that might be a better method. Another one they're looking at as well is one where you actually have devices that are on the footpath. Right. And you would hardly see these devices. But what they do is as people park in spots, it reads those number plates. And then again, if it's there, past a certain period of time mm. and an alert goes through to one of our parking Again. officers. So there's a the range of technologies. amazing right now, oh, yeah, isn't it? Yeah, yeah that's right. Yeah. So a range of technologies we're looking at. Yeah. We'll see what's the most effective and then we'll go forward with that. But again, for anyone out there, mm. if you're parking in parking zones, you look at the sign, you park within the perimeters there, you're okay. That's it's right. only if you go past that. It's only if you step that. outside. It's like anything, isn't it? That's right. All right, Matt, moving right along. Now, in regards to this next little one, oh, we did talk about this last week, and I, I think it's worthwhile having another good crack at it there because uh, last Friday night, of course, was the opening of the Art Express. Um, it's magic. 38 exhibits, I think, there is here of the kids, uh, the past HSC uh, students, and they're exhibiting their, their works here. We, we think we talked about it last week as well. The young girl there, Kira Bussey, one of the local girls here, um, has, uh, has her artwork involved and, of course, uh, the Dubbo Curation. Um, there's been a number of people there, like Tamara Laurie, uh, one of the art uh, teachers in town there. She's part of uh, curating this exhibit as well. So tell us about us, Matt. Um, do we get this every year? Is Art Express something we get every year now? Well, we haven't had it for a few years because of COVID. Mm-hmm. And so this is the first year we've had it since 2019. Okay. But I do remember going and looking at previous Art Expresses and I was always fascinated mm. by the variety of artworks created by the students. And I remember back when I did my HSC, I didn't do art, but there was a friend of mine who did art. And I remember the drawings that she did and the artworks that people did then seemed to me to be drawings or paintings and that was about it. But some of the things they create now, some can be audiovisual media, some can mm. be sculptures or paintings, a whole range of different things. So it's actually mm. quite fascinating. So I really enjoy looking at it. Mm. It's been a shame that it hasn't been here for the last few years, but again, that's kind of an asterisk so that we have on those few pretty years. Pretty much the nature of the world, <laughs> wasn't the last few years? A exactly lot of people right. can sort of say the same thing. It's a pity no one was here for the last couple of years. That's right. Yeah, that's right. But anyway, it's pretty exciting to see it back here. Mm. So Tamara Laurie, that's right, having yes. a local art teacher be the curator on this. Mm. And our staff picked Tamara to actually curate this. In the past, they've done it themselves, but they thought it would be nice to have someone who is current with the syllabus and to actually pick out ones that made sense. Mm. Now, there were somewhere in the vicinity of 400 artworks. There were about, let's go back a step. There were 
about 8,000 art students last year in the HSC. Mm. From those, the markers chose about 400 artworks that could be potentially used for Art Express. And then there are curators at different exhibitions around the state where they'll pick out from those 400. So they've got 400 to choose from. They'll pick out from those the ones that they think should be displayed in their particular exhibition. Okay, that's how it works. Yeah, that's right. And then of those 400, 266 were chosen at different exhibitions across the state. Of those, as you said, 38 uh, exhibited here. Mm. So it is something that we as a council can ask to have every year. And typically yep. if you ask for it, they'll let you have it. Yep. But it is pretty good to actually see those artworks. Mm. And when you look at them, if they, if you walked into that exhibition and they said, here's the latest exhibition from a range of professional artists, you'd mm. say, yeah, wow, they're pretty good artworks. When they say these are from year 12 students that yes. might be 17, 18 years of age, you say, they're still pretty impressive, but yeah. wow, I'm probably more impressed now because they're so young and at the beginning of a potential art career or maybe mm. just the beginning of something that they took a great interest in for a certain period mm. of time. They're not all going to go on and be artists. Well, let, can I share a little share, I'll share a little story with you sure. in, in regards to Kiribati. Now, this... Now, sorry, for, so Kiribati has got her artwork there. So that was chosen yes. by the markers as being one of high enough quality. And then when Tamara was choosing them, obviously it was something that she thought, well, you've got a local student, you really want to have that person yes. there. So yes. the when you first walk into the exhibit, Kira's is the first one you see. Oh, isn't that wonderful? That's right. And it's a, a lovely group of paintings there, essentially about her grandmother, things in her grandmother's fridge, things in her grandmother's home. So I spoke to Kira about it and just got some of the information about her ideas and her mm. concepts, and it's always great to see that. So that's Kira in yes. there, so it's great to see that local student. So, sorry, go forward now We've with your story. story. But anyway, that's, that's all <laughs> fine. No, that's fine. <laughs> Look, with little Kira there, God love, she's a gorgeous young lady. Um, now, Kira, of course, has just mentioned there the fact that it's all about her grandmother's stuff. It's from the fridge, and there's little items and special little items there. She never told her grandmother that she was going to do this. Yeah, right. And so there's, she, I don't know if she told you this, but she no. never actually told the grandmother she was going to paint all these little special items from uh, her grandmother's collection. When her grandmother came along and saw it for the first time, she looked at it and she goes, that looks familiar. <laughs> <laughs> Isn't that lovely? That looks really, really nice. Thing. Well, beautiful, Kira. Love your work. And, of course, Kira turned and said, Nan, that's... You, that's your stuff. That's this is what I've painted. Well, of course, the grandmother broke down in tears oh, and was no. all very emotional. It was so <laughs> such a lovely thing for her. So, yeah, and I love the fact too that it's right front and center. So, yeah. look, please, if you're doing yourself a favor this weekend, if you don't want to go out and watch the touch footy, or if you haven't been down to see that next weekend, go along and check out this because yeah. it'd be absolutely magic to go along and see this great artwork. And so, it's there for about eight weeks. Eight weeks, okay. So, yeah. so you, it's not really a massive rush. We've got eight weeks there to go that's down right. and see it. And one of the things that I think is significant is that we have that wonderful gallery space now yes. we've had things like the Archibald exhibition that's coming again this year in June this year we'll oh, have wow. the latest Archibald yeah, exhibition yes. finest exhibition and we've seen Archibald paintings there before in previous years mm. but something like Art Express if we didn't have that gallery space and the mm. quality of that gallery space mm. so it's temperature controlled humidity controlled etc mm. if we didn't have that space we wouldn't have exhibitions like Art Express mm. and you may remember our last art gallery which was basically the downstairs area of the council building. Many, many moons ago. Many moons ago, that was, which is basically used as conference rooms now. Yes. There was no way that we would have Art Express if that was our total exhibition space. So having this space there now means we get to see these high-quality artworks. And I shouldn't probably call out favourites, but I do have two favourite exhibitions that we see at our art gallery each year. One is Art Express, the other yes. one's Waste to Art. Right. And what I love about both those two is that you've got people that you know in your community, people that are there side by side with you that are creating mm. these wonderful artworks. The Waste to Art mm. is just anyone in our community taking some rubbish, some junk, some mm. waste, and creating these great creative artworks out of it. And again, mm. with the students, you've got people in the wider community, but you've got students there who yes. are creating these wonderful artworks and you just look at it and go, that's just fantastic. While you've been studying and doing all your other work for your HSC, you've mm. also found the time to create these wonderful artworks. And the teachers deserve a huge amount of credit as well because they've got to tread a very fine line. They've got to encourage creativity, make sure the students own their piece, make sure it's about them and their personal ideas there mm. while also making sure it sticks within the syllabus mm. and the rules and conditions about that. Mm. So it's a fine line to tread to encourage, direct, but also let the student come out with their own creativity. Yes. So it's great. I'm with you. Go on there and have a look oh, at it there. It's fantastic. As they say, do yourself a favour and get on down. Yeah.
Now, quick little one here, Matt. Uh, we did actually talk about this again, Andy, last week, maybe the week before, about um, the the fluoride dosing system. Um, now, this was obviously an issue that came up in regards to the fact that we realised we don't have fluoride currently in our water. Um, and now there's a new fluoride dosing system that's going to be set up. It's going to be constructed here to allow, finally, for the, uh, the fluoride to come back into our water system. Now, was there a decision made during the week at Council uh, for, for this to, to be given to someone already, or is this going out to tender? What's, what's happening here? So it's going out to tender, and there was a report that went through to a confidential session of Council. So I can't talk about the details of the discussion, but I can mm. talk about the outcome from it. And so one of the things that we've said to our CEO that we want as councillors, we want this fluoride dosing system to be up and running as quickly as possible. And so the CEO has gone through to his staff and said, we need to get this, we've engaged public works, we'll go through the tender process, etc. Now the tender closes on the 20th of February. There's been good interest in the tender. You always want at least two tenderers, so you've got at least some competition. competition there. Absolutely. And so the staff thought, well, if we want this to happen as quickly as possible, Mm. rather than wait for that tender to go to the next council or committee meeting, because committee meetings can also make a decision about a tender, Mm. we should just ask councillors to give our CEO the authority to make a decision on the tender without coming back to council, because that'll save a bit of time. Because once the tender finishes, the decision can be made within a day. You assess Mm. the tenders, go through that process, and the CEO can do it very quickly. So that was the request from staff. Now, councillors looked at that, and there was a lot of discussion in that confidential session about that. Mm. Ultimately, councillors decided to reject that process, and the reason... I feel, and I can't talk for the reason that every council made the decision, but the reason I feel that the councils wanted to go that way is that they felt that councillors should be in control of a tender, which this tender will be well over a million dollars. And the rules technically are once a price goes over a quarter of a million dollars, then it should or has to go to tender, has to go back to council. So we are councillors. We make the decisions on these. We don't think just for the sake of a compressed time frame, we should give away our responsibility and put that responsibility on the CEO. Mm. It also opens up the opportunity for people to make accusations mm. of some bias or some corruption because you've got one person making the decision rather than the body of councillors. Yes. So that probably weighed on councillors' mind as well. Now Protecting again, we're not the integrity making any, of the system. I'd refer to that as correct, and we're not making any suggestion that there's any corruption from staff or our CEO there. But again, it's the process. Mm. So the position was put forward by our staff, that's fine, that's their job, they can bring those reports forward, but councils ultimately decided, no, when that tender closes, do your analysis of that, bring that report to council, and council, at a committee meeting or a council meeting, will make the final decision, which is mm. what they should be doing yeah. on that tender, and I think that's really important, because you can give delegated authority to a CEO to have a higher limit in terms of the dollar value on tenders, you can say you've got no limit. You can have an unlimited amount. So don't worry about bringing any of those tenders back to council. And I've seen councils do that in the past, and I don't agree with that at all. Mm. I really think it should be councillors making those decisions. Well, isn't what the job of the councillor is in, in so many the, ways? One, one of the jobs. Uh, absolutely. That's it's one right. of the, the yeah. key jobs I'd be suggesting. So councillors said... We appreciate what you're doing, but no, bring it back to council and councillors will make the decision on that. And I think okay. that's the right way to go. Well, speaking of tenders and decisions, we may as well move on to this one as well in regards to what's happened here uh, with the large electricity sites. Now, again, this was a decision that, similar sort of scenario I'm, I'm suggesting here, where um, council came back to the councillors and, and said the fact the staff came back to the councillors and said, look, we've got an option here for you in regards to the uh, large electricity sites. Councillors have turned around and said, we're not really necessarily happy with that. We prefer that you go back and to seek out some more options for us and to come back. That's correct, wasn't it? In correct, yeah. So, at the, so last, at the last council meeting, there was the tender that came forward for large electricity sites. Now, we've got two main contracts that we have for electricity. Right. We've got our small sites and we've got our large sites. Mm, right, <laughs> and yes. 100 megawatt hours per year is the cutoff between those two. You may remember that in last year, we actually had a tender go out for our small sites. We eventually awarded that to a company that essentially will save us about $120,000 a year, mm. over a 10-year contract, and that was by going to green power. So that's 100% mm. renewable power, which is fantastic, yep. and that'll save us money on our current contract. 
the electricity market now is probably a bit more volatile and mm. our current contract finishes in the middle of this year for a large electricity sites. So there was a tender put out by council and then that was brought back to the last council meeting. Now, it is complicated and it is volatile. Mm. So we went through, we had a presentation by someone that was engaged by council to go through and help us with this process. And at the end of that, councillors sat there and said, there's a recommendation for one particular company to win that tender. We don't think as a group of councillors that we've got enough information to make a decision, given the fact that this potentially was up to 10 years Mm. and potentially might have been up to, say, $5 million a year or thereabouts. Mm. $50 $50 million contract we're about to give to someone yep. and we don't feel we know enough, we don't feel like we understand enough and we don't feel like that's the best pricing out there on the mm. market. We've got some time up our sleeve. Yep. So we rejected all of those and we said to the staff, the resolution of council essentially was go back out to these particular organisations, ask for some more information, ask for some better pricing and in the meantime, give mm. us some more information. So the staff organised a workshop. Yeah. We had an expert come along and give us more information about this incredibly complicated electricity market that we've mm. got for ourselves mm. at the moment in this country mm-hmm. and give us some more comfort around us being able to make a decision because yeah, well, I don't feel comfortable spending $50 million yeah. of the Especially community's money. Especially over that time money. period as well. That's you right. Know, it's something locking into it for a long time. You can imagine in nine and a half years' time, some group of councillors are going, what were those people yeah, yeah, thinking back absolutely. in 2023? Why didn't they? think about this a bit more, mm. gee, we really want to make sure we get this right. So we went through that process, had the workshop, they, the staff went back out to the market to get some different pricing, some better pricing, right. if you like, yep. and then that was all brought back to our council meeting on Thursday, where we had more information now, we had more knowledge about it all, and we had some better pricing. So that was okay, fantastic. So, so it's it's been worthwhile, the, the, the hold off for the extra month and council doing... Getting a few extra uh, tender options has come through. Absolutely right. I what's think, the result? I think what we ended up doing was we awarded the contract to Iberdrola. Right. And so that's the, the company who's won that. Yep. And I think we'll probably save over the – we went for a seven-and-a-half-year contract, not yeah. a 10-year contract. Over that time frame, we'll probably save close to maybe $10 million. $10 million? Based on some of the pricing. Now, some of that pricing has got some variability about it, so it may not be definitely $10 million. Right, but right. Just by delaying that decision and getting more information and getting a, a better price, yeah. we could save a significant amount of money. That's so a lot that's, of extra roads getting fixed there. That's exactly right. So if you can save that. So again, I think the feeling from councillors last time, and this group of councillors is really good in saying, mm. we want to make sure that we're very comfortable and confident with every decision we make. So this was a perfect example of mm. that where they didn't feel comfortable with it. They wanted to go back and get more information. And we did have time up our sleeve. Yeah. The other nice thing, and this wasn't the driving reason behind the decision, it was based yeah. more on price than anything else, but Iberdrola is a, lo- it's a Spanish company, but it's mm. local to us in that they own the Bedengra Wind Farm. So down in Wellington, you've got the Bedengra Wind Farm there. Yes. That's been bought out by Iberdrola. Yeah. So you've got a local company that's in our community. So we actually felt better about it overall. Mm. Now, having said that, if there had been another company that was cheaper, we probably still would have gone with that other company. Yeah, sure. But it was nice that Iberdrola was yeah. the best price. It, it works well. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. And having that local company there just makes you feel like you're helping. Mm. they're helping out our community. We're helping them out in terms of well. buying electricity from them as well. So a good result Great. all around. Well done to all parties involved in that. What a cracking weekend it's been too, Matt, hasn't it, Uh, in regards not only to the weather-wise, but of course the New South Wales touch footy. That was magic this weekend, seeing so many more people in town, and uh, I know even on Friday night I was uh, up there at Macquarie Inn there for a little bit, and they turned around and said to me, uh, Mark, we've got over 300 people turning up here in about an hour's time (laughs) for for dinner here on a Friday night, which was just magic. Uh, And they had all the different areas set up for it as well. I just love seeing the buzz around Dubbo when we have these big events. And it was actually around the CBD, driving around the CBD on Friday, Mm. on Saturday. You know, it was fantastic to see so many cars around, Mm. shops were busy. And you might think it's just the hospitality businesses that are going to be busy, but I've actually talked to a few retailers that are involved in a whole range of other things outside hospitality, Mm. and they've been very impressed with just the extra business. But you're right, Mm. the restaurants, talking to restaurants, they were trying to get extra sittings through. They were trying to work out ways they could accommodate all the people that wanted to eat. So it has been fantastic. Mm. And certainly talking to Dean Russell, who's the CEO of New South Wales Touch, he's been overly impressed with 
the grounds, the preparation, the organisation from our team. Mm. I mean, they've got a team of 11 here as well doing lots mm. of the organisation, but mm. it has been a really positive experience. And one thing that I certainly picked up from people, I spent a bit of time down there over the weekend, but mm. one of the things that I picked up from people, just random people that I spoke to, how you're enjoying it, what's happening, they have all been a bit surprised, but very impressed. So, wow, we didn't know that Dubbo looked this good. We didn't know the ground. Especially looked. in February. Well, that's right. <laughs> that's and right. I think some of them, especially from some coastal areas, yeah. have this image that you go to the bush, in inverted yes, commas, yes. and they're going to see a dust bowl. And they came out, mm. and our staff have done a fantastic job oh, preparing the ground. So they came with these beautiful green fields and mm. all the line markings, perfect. Mm. I had one person say to me, oh, who did you get in to do all this work on the field? <laughs> and <laughs> that's and right. I thought, that's a little bit insulting to us. That's right. I said, no, no. See those council staff blokes over there right. worked away madly for us. That's our staff. That? There. Now, yeah, our yeah. staff have got all the talent and the ability to do that all the time. What they're normally trying to do is spread their resources so thin over mm. all of our grounds. Now, obviously, what they've done for this one is concentrated on that Lady Cutler precinct. Mm. It also gives you a good indication of the value of having those sporting fields there together yeah. because what we've been able to do is shut off the traffic from that external perimeter. Yeah. And so inside that, you've had kids and parents and prams and all sorts of things to be able to just move around in there with safety, knowing there's not cars going to be rushing by on the way to work or mm. things like that. It's been a bit of an inconvenience for some people. I haven't really had any complaints from residents. I'm sure there's some people that have got their nose a little bit out of joint because it has been a bit of an inconvenience. But I'm pretty confident that the numbers that we've crunched before the event, the $4 million that we think uh, will be injected into the I'm sure the, the pros have outweighed the negatives on this one. Yeah, so great event. Mm. And I think... I'm pretty confident in saying that we're going to be in a very good position for the bid that we'll put in for the next three years. doesn't guarantee we'll get it. Mm. Some councils throw a lot of money at events like this. I don't think we've got the ability yeah. to throw a lot of money, but what we've got is the track record now of a hugely successful event. Well, well done to everyone involved again. Well, Matt's been a big program. We've got through a lot today, I suggest, mate. There's uh, quite a lot of stuff there I think we've moved through. And, uh, of course, but it is the end of the show. And we always finish off with your limerick. So, what have you got in line for us this week? Well, I couldn't help it. The touch footy was on. So, oh. to me, the touch footy and the great weather yes. and the great preparation. So, my limerick for this week is all about that. And here it goes. In Dubbo, the sun shines so bright. The green grounds are a lovely sight. With touch footy to play on a fine weather day. It's a scene that just feels so right. Oh, it's a lovely way to finish. Well done, Matt. That's brilliant, buddy. Mate, well, it's uh, lovely chatting to you again, as always, and thank you for updating us all on what's happening in and around the Dubbo District this week. Until next week, everyone, you guys take care. Get out and enjoy that beautiful weather. We'll see you all next week. Meryl Memo with Matthew Dickerson from Dubbo Regional Council.